0: Have Irina true with me. And normally, Irina interviews, along with me, people for this podcast series. But today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Irina about her PhD thesis, because Irina recently graduated.
1: Hi, it's strange to be on the other side of this. Hi, you were until
0: recently a PhD student at the Department of Physics at Stockholm University. We worked in the same research group, which is called CONCOR, which is a condensed matter theory group and you worked in the fringes of condensed matter theory. You worked on quantum theory. Your thesis was titled Studies in the Geometry of Quantum Measurements. This already involves quite a lot of pictures about what you must have been doing because it both involves quantum, geometry, and measurement. We will get through all of this in the next 25-ish minutes. To begin with, I will start the way we always start, and that is to ask you some questions both about the research field, but also about why we carry out research in a field like ours or yours. So, could you, as short as possible, I know this is hard, describe what the aim of your thesis was? I
1: worked on two projects during my PhD. The, the major one, the aim was to look at particular quantum measurements, which we will call "seek" measurements. And the big question there is, do they exist? It is possible to measure in this way in quantum systems of any dimension. And my aim was to look at these measurements in various dimensions and try to figure out as much as possible about them, their properties, so we can understand them better and come up with conjectures or theorem that will maybe help us find them in more dimensions than the ones we already know. It was a very mathematical project. And I also work on something more applied in quantum cryptography and quantum certification.
0: And we will in this talk
1: be focusing on
0: the first part and leave for others to discuss the more applied use of quantum physics. Keeping in mind that we are actually focusing on the very abstract and very mathematical aspects of quantum physics, uh, I think it might be relevant to ask, first of all, what is the goal of research like yours?
1: Uh, And what drives it? My research is quite fundamental. It's not really uh, driven by the quantum race, for example. But of course, this all lurks in the background, the practical applications and the potential in the future of building a quantum computer. But being fundamental and theoretical research, it's more driven by the need to solve problems in quantum mechanics for the sake of making the theory more complete, or making it more apparent that it is a complete theory.
0: Why is it important that we carry out this type
1: of research? You mean other than curiosity for the natural world? We want to understand how systems behave, how quantum systems behave, and we also want to understand the math. This is very abstract. Curiosity for the quantum world
0: is a very abstract concept, and math, in this case, I can say knowing a bit about it, is also very abstract. So what is in it, for me,
1: if I was not a physicist, why should I care? Well, quantum mechanics is a large part, an integral part of how we view the world today. And it comes with technology, some of which we already use, such as atomic clock, and some of which is predicted to become more important in the future. I mentioned earlier the so-called quantum race. So there is some urgency linked to getting the technology right and fast, uh, there are implications on cybersecurity and so on. But outside of the technology, people care because it is a part of the intellectual climate that shaped the, se- the 20th century. It introduced a new way of thinking about nature. And I think this is really neat. It illustrates how far we can go with something that is not intuitive. Quantum mechanics is not intuitive in the way other physics theories are, but we can still learn and use it. And this makes it interesting even to people from the outside.
0: And more specifically, your research, the geometric
1: part of it, what is interesting about it? It relates to an old geometry problem, which is the problem of how to describe a regular tetrahedron in high dimensions. And a tetrahedron
0: is a geometric object, a pyramid with four faces, all of them are triangles. And if they are regular, then the faces are all equal. Yes. But going back, We want to understand the world around us. Yes. Can you make it understandable for
1: everybody? Yes, to a certain degree. If we take us given a lot of things about quantum mechanics, I can tell you where my work is placed. And this we will take as the base that you have to
0: accept certain things about quantum mechanics. And we promise here from Nifigan that later on we will find someone to talk more in depth about quantum mechanics and quantum physics. And I will move on then. And I want to talk a bit about the kind of research, the kind of quantum research you have done. For many, quantum mechanics is a bit like magic. And even though we say that we will take many things as facts, I still think we should go through some of these facts. So I want to zoom in on the very basics, and that is quantum mechanics is fundamentally different from classical mechanics. If I throw a tennis ball into the air, I can describe it using Newton's laws. And that means that I can always say where it is and where it's going. And this It's because the system is classical. This leads me to ask you, what's the difference between a classical system and a quantum system?
1: So in principle, classical systems can be described by taking quantum mechanics to what we call the classical limit. So we should see quantum mechanics as more fundamental. What makes it different is hard to summarize, but we can look at an example which is quite well known and understood, the uncertainty principle. For classical objects, as you said about the apple, we can measure and find out precisely where it is and how fast it's going and in which direction. This is the quantity called momentum. For quantum systems, we have a limitation. Quantum mechanics says we cannot know both these quantities precisely well. If we have the position at precision, then the momentum has a large distribution of probability or we know both of them with a smaller distribution, but there is a limit to how well they can be known together.
0: So the systems you are looking at, they are quantum. What are some quantum systems, or rather systems where you need quantum mechanics to describe them?
1: For example, electrons, a single electron, or single atoms, or molecules, in general small things.
0: Yeah, um... So what you have is a quantum system, and it is a rather general quantum system. So you don't really care uh, how this would look in the lab. It could be an atom, it could be something else. The important thing is that it is an abstraction for a quantum system. And what do you then
1: want to do with this system? I want to measure its state. And what is a state? For example, it could be the spin. This is a fairly well-known example. Electrons have a characteristic called the spin, which can have the value up or down. A property for a classical system may be the position or which has a certain value, it may be the color, which should have some discrete values, it's red or green, and so on. But for a quantum system, the spin is a good example.
0: Okay, and if we were thinking of the electron, it, it could have spin up or spin down, or we, and that we can represent with
1: zero and one. Yes, but it can also have spin. Alpha zero plus beta one, with some restrictions on alpha and beta. Which restrictions? The sum of their squares, so alpha square plus beta square, should be one. And that allows us to draw a sphere. Yes, that is the equation of a sphere. So basically your electron with just one property, spin, and two extremal uh, values of this property, zero and one, has its state space. So like the space of all possible states is a sphere. That's a pretty neat description, actually. It's very visual. Yes, you can do very visual things in dimension two. (laughs) Yes,
0: and that's actually important to point out, that because it's just the surfaces, it's a two-dimensional space. That is, in principle, the states you're interested in when you're interested in, when you are in two dimensions. These are the states you care about. Spin up and spin down, zero and one, and the sphere that they span. You have a general state that is somewhere on this sphere and what do you
1: want to do? I want to be able to tell it apart from all the other states by measuring
0: it. Is that hard?
1: Yes, in the sense that you have to choose uh, cleverly what measurements to use. And measurement here basically means which state on this sphere that we're talking about you take as your reference. And then you check the overlap of your system with these references.
0: So your task is, so to speak, to find these
1: references. Yes, I want to be able to tell what state my system is in, unequivocally, to distinguish it from all other states. And it's not very intuitive because it's and it's not very intuitive because of the existence of something called mixed state. This system, uh, which has states on this two-dimensional sphere that we talked about, is characterized by four parameters. In fact, so I need a set of four measurements to find out these four parameters.
0: And what about the measurements you mentioned before,
1: the six? Yes, the ones that I work with are called informationally complete because of this reason, because they allow complete information about the state of the system. You can tell it apart from all others. What is the relationship between them and geometry? The key to understanding the geometry is that in order to tell these states apart, you would need four parameters in dimension two. And in dimension five, for example, you would need 25 parameters. So yeah, I always need the dimension squared, of parameters? Yes. The ones that I'm interested in are particularly nice or elegant. They are equally spread out on the space. Think about the tetrahedron you just described and put it inside the sphere. Its corners are equally distant from each other and they are as far apart as four points can ever be on a sphere. And then we want the same geometric setup in higher dimensions. That is very nice. I will shift
0: gears and ask you uh, some slightly different types of questions, um, a bit about how it was to be a PhD student. First of all, I would like if uh, you would be willing to tell us a bit about your background and how you
1: ended up doing this PhD project. So my background is in physics. I did a bachelor and then a master's both in theoretical physics. Then I went for a PhD in quantum information. I was already doing quantum kind of things in my bachelor. I was studying philosophy at the same time, so I suppose I had some delusions of grandeur about the ability and importance to to look at um, fundamental quantum mechanics. And when you started your PhD,
0: how broadly formulated were the research questions you were interested in back then? And...
1: So I had quite a free type of um, PhD. I, I have quite a lot of freedom in choosing what projects I would be working on. And I have done a lot of small things. The first ones that I started my PhD with actually did not materialize. One of them, we ended up with no result. And the other one was a small thing that made a poster in a conference and was then forgotten. So in some sense, I have picked new uh, research questions along the path as they have presented themselves to my group.
0: And how and with whom did you share your research during your PhD?
1: So I went to conferences and wrote papers, which are the standard things to do to share with the immediate community of people who work in the same thing, of course. And it's quite important to, to keep each other in the loop a bit too. And besides that, I have also been part of a pretty cool project with uh, historians of science. So it was a joint um, history and physics project where they would pair historians with physicists and try to cover some topic in physics from also the, the history of science perspective. And that was very nice because then I got to talk about my research to a community of scholars, but who are doing a completely different thing and who are actually very, very knowledgeable about quantum mechanics. That must have been pretty cool
0: to, to talk to someone who knows a lot about what you're doing, but have a completely different background than yours. Um, and quantum physics has this kind of reputation of being very hard to explain. I'm curious, how,
1: how was it to, uh, to talk about your res- research to historians? So in reality, an understated aspect of this is that many historians of science are former scientists or at least trained to some degree in the sciences. So historians of quantum mechanics have at some point if not worked as, as uh, researchers in quantum mechanics, they have studied some quantum mechanics. And they have a, a working knowledge of um, of what measurements and states and so on are. But, uh, of course, their, their discipline now is history, so their, um, their questions and their reasons for questioning things, their methods, are all those of the historians. And they're rigorous about aspects that I am very fuzzy minded about so in some sense I was more ill at ease and unable to follow than they were with me because they have all studied some.
0: That's pretty interesting because quantum physics has this reputation of being hard and to to, to understand if you are not even if you are a physicist and even if you are a quantum physicist um, so like this, uh, this part about explaining your research to someone who's not from your immediate field that's kind of an interesting topic in more general terms. To, to whom and why should you explain your research or be able to communicate your research?
1: Well I should be able to communicate it to pretty much everyone to certain to a certain degree and this is also part of the definition of being a doctor or part of the definition of being a physicist.
0: I know that you on the side are interested in open science and open access and, and all of these aspects. So I was wondering if you had anything to say on, on that along that line. I believe in open
1: access. And I am actually working on the question now a bit with um, Eurodoc, the European uh, Representational Body for Early Career Researchers. But this is mostly about sharing data and sharing scientific papers. And I think that these things should be free and the public should have access to them, especially since they are created from public money. But... Um, Access is not sufficient, I think, because, of course, nobody or most people cannot read scientific papers. And the thing called outreach, which is trying to make the science also or the research also intelligible. Which is public, what we try right now. is <laughs> Yes, it's also a very, very important thing, part of one's training. Because research is cool and everybody should care about research. Why should people care about your research? So, of course, people who don't follow quantum mechanics don't have an immediate need for my little rules that help you with these particular geometric objects in these particular scenarios. But it is important, first of all, to, to get a feeling of how breakthroughs in this kind of hard mathematical problems happen and how the accumulation of, um, of rules of terms and small propositions and and so on guide us through a field where we are actually we are nowhere near answering the fundamental do this exist in all dimensions question but it's very interesting to see how much you can do without being able to touch the fundamental problem it's also interesting to see how long it takes
0: and how many people's work is required because it's not a lonely person's job or like it's not one person who who solves it it's it's building upon what has been done before that's very very exactly. interesting and very far from the picture it's of the of the scientists that sits in her office and have divine inspiration
1: exactly i in particular uh, want the people to know this is what i always try to communicate when i talk about my research how piecemeal and improvised everything is What was the best thing about being a PhD student? The opportunity to work with other researchers and their generosity. My field is very friendly. People mentor you and give you encouragement and also access to their notes and programs. So this is
0: more research-specific questions. And just to recap, you are interested in a type of quantum measurements called SIG POVMs. That means symmetric informationally complete POVMs, where the M stands for measurements. And before we dig into this, I would like to ask you a few, few, few questions uh, about the general topics uh, and about some things. So first of all, POVM, that's a type of measurements, right? Yes, that is all measurements. Okay. What does it mean when when we have a SIC POVM, S-I-C measurement?
1: Yeah, so first of all, I propose that we call them SICs from now on and drop the POVM, which is a historic... um... Super, we can do that. So the I and C stands for informationally complete, which, as I explained earlier, allows you to distinguish between any two states. And the S stands for symmetric, which, if we go back to the picture of the sphere, means that they are equally spread out. Okay. So this is
0: equally spread out informationally complete measurements,
1: so to speak. Yes.
0: So it's measurements that gives us in a basis that is uh, symmetric and uh, that is symmetric uh, gives us an informational complete answer to the question what state are we measuring on? Yes. That is pretty cool. You touched on this, but this was something I remember from your defense, that I thought was pretty cool, that it is equally spread out, the spaces. This is with the two-dimensional case, with the sphere. It means that we place a
1: tetrahedron within. But if we go to higher dimensions, what does this mean? If we go to higher dimension, it means that we need to place an object with these square corners. In a five-dimensional space, we want 25 corners the subject and they should be equally spread out over the space. Why is six interesting? So other than the fundamental kind of question of why do this exist, they do have practical application in what we call tomography, quantum tomography, which is exactly this task of distinguishing. If you have prepared a system of distinguishing what state it is in, it would be a bit a stretch to say that we care about six for this practical reason. but We care for its deep mathematical implication. Because we have the, the geometrical aspect on one side, and we have, in my case a list. in the case of my six, we have properties that come from algebraic number theory. And being able to go between number theory and geometry is a very valuable thing, and six offer us such a way. We mentioned six in two dimensions, and
0: you mentioned in five dimensions. Do they exist in all dimensions? That is the question that we are to answer. Uh, that is the question that you would like to answer. You were interested in seeing if you could prove that they lived in, in certain dimensions. Yes,
1: even more modest than that, I was interested in proving if in dimensions that are of the form d times d minus 2. This is hard to keep in mind, but think 5 times 3, 7 times 5... 9 times 7, 8 times 6, and so on. Whether 6 in these dimensions can be related to 6 in the lower dimension. so the 6 in dimension, the 6 dimension 5 and 3, can it be related to the 6 dimension 5? And how strong is this connection? What are its implications? And whether we can in the future say from having a 6 in dimension 5, we can say something for the 6 dimension uh, 15. And then from the seeking dimension 2000, whether we can say something about the seeking dimension 2000 times 1998.
0: Okay. And in this, you have to treat even and odd dimensions differently.
1: Yes. Why? This has to do with some very deep uh, properties of a certain group called the Weyl heisenberg group in these dimensions. And the Weil heisenberg group is a group that keeps popping up in quantum mechanics, in signal... Processing, it's a quite fundamental, uh, quite fundamental thing that we work with a lot. And it has the nice property that it can be split into into the product of smaller file Heisenberg groups in uh, the other dimensions. So if we have dimension 5 times 3, instead of working with the group of dimension 15, we can work with the group of dimension 5 times the group of dimensions 3. And that makes everything much, much easier in ways that are like quite hard to, to explain, but you know immediately when you, d- you do the math. It's everything just follows in. F- from, um, and many conclusions follow from this. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you are in the group 6 times 4, uh, work wi- you have to work with the Heisenberg group in dimension 24, that's 6 times 4, as opposed to working with dimension 6 times dimension 4. And this is also uh, rooted in something very deep from number theory in what is known as the Chinese remaindering theorem, which is an ancient theorem. Um, Of course, it has a modern form now, and we work with its modern form, but it's an ancient result that tells us something about numbers that are relatively prime, so they don't have any common divisors, like 5 and 3 or 27 and 25. And then whenever D is odd, we use this very old result to split our group and then we can work with smaller groups and we can debate all our proofs based on that. Whereas when D is even and our dimension is like six times four, six times four have a factor of two in common and eight times six have a factor of two in common. And whatever D will choose, it will there will also be a factor of two in common, which means we cannot uh, work with the smaller dimensional groups and we cannot So for a long time, we could only work with the odd case and we solved what we were interested in in odd dimensions and wrote that up and published that and left the even dimensions hanging out in the air, even though numerically we had reason to believe that they would behave the same as the odd ones. What about the even dimensions? So eventually we did manage to find a trick that also allows us to split the group in some other way for even dimensions as well. Basically, we go from... We take this factor of two out, we have four groups, and within each of these four groups, we can do Chinese remaindering again. And it remains always more complicated than the other dimension, but it turns out that we are then again able to do some of the math, obtain uh, results similar to ones for for odd dimensions. So in the end, the results for my PhD, for this part of my PhD, because I also did some quantum certification things, but the results for this part of my PhD are in two different papers that we wrote in quite different conditions.
0: So what are the things, what what do you think of all the things you've done in your PhD, what do you think is the most important
1: result? The introduction of alignment, which is a relation that we have introduced between a second dimension 5, for example, and a second dimension 5 times 3, and so on. And this relation, we have shown numerically that it holds in all the six that are known, and we have also proven some implications of it. And the reason this relation is very interesting and important is that it points us to a path for going to higher and higher and higher dimensions, because if we can go from 5 to 15 through this relation, then we can go to 15 times 13, and so on. And we call this a ladder of 6. It opens the possibility to prove things about an infinite number of 6 by arranging them on this ladder.
0: What do you foresee the future of the field? What do you think that people should do next? Yeah, so people are now working on other properties that these towers might have. So thank you, first of all, for taking your time uh, to talk with me today about your research, I find it more and more interesting each time that goes. Uh, but I have also heard about it a few times before, listened thank to your you. defense, read your thesis both before and after it was um, it was printed. So I think your research is probably probably the research I
1: have I know the most about, except for my own. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it again.
0: I think this has been very nice, and thank you for letting me question you again about your research. Bye. Bye. You listen to Nufigen, and this was Peel speaking with Irina Dimitru, who has finished her PhD at the Department of Physics at Stockholm University. If you want to know more about Irina's research, you can find the information at our webpage, nufigen.co. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as curious in one word. This episode of Nufigen was published in October 2020.